Good evening, this is Gary Kavanagh here today on the right side. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Monday the 9th of March. Michael, how are you? I'm okay, Gary. So far, I'm fine. Are you living life large and in charge? I'm wishing I was a rich man that could get a high ace, fill it with pasta and dried beans and find some isolated house that has very good internet and go away there and stay there for six months. Drink wine. But other than that, I'm living life you get on your land. to the full, yeah. Oh, there'll be cameras and automatic gun posts and things. And probably I was thinking a small guest house half a mile down the road where people can come and quarantine themselves if they want to come and visit. But only the right sort of people. Oh, God, yeah. The, the invitations will be limited. And there will certainly be because... Uh, the zombies will be coming around. There'll have to be a fairly serious arsenal in the house as well. Hmm. So just for the listeners, uh, because this is something we've been being asked about for ages, and we couldn't do it uh, for ages because of the way the podcasts on Gripped were set up. Uh, so you may have noticed you used to be able to be able to subscribe to the right side on its own. Then it became all of the Gripped podcasts at once, which was obviously a bit of a mess of a situation because you would sign on to us and you'd get parenting podcast or you'd sign on to parenting podcasts and you'd get us yeah both of which are not the situation we want so we've now set up on a transistor depending on how you're listening to this podcast you might be listening to it from the gripped account or the transistor account while we switch over but if you go to our transistor account and i'll put a link in this the description of this podcast on the gripped website you will be able to subscribe to this podcast on its own and you won't end up downloading 15 podcasts a week from Grit. Uh, in the same way, you'll be able to download everyone else's podcasts. If all you want is the smooth voice of Patricia Casey telling you how to make trifle. And that sounds like a, a fun way to spend an afternoon. Of course. Now, anyway, the stories for uh, today. I think the big thing that came out today, and this is due to the great work of Susan Mitchell, who I would say is the best health reporter by a mile in Ireland. Nothing against the other health reporters, but I think Susan Mitchell is consistently on top of things. It came out today in the Business Post that there was a projection from the HSE that said 1.9 million people in Ireland could be infected with coronavirus. Not not now, secretly, but in the future. Yeah. And they reached out to the HSE and said, can you comment on this? And the HSE said, uh, no, we can't comment on that at all. We're not going to We're not going to talk about it. Because, Michael, as you well know, in ensuring that the public don't panic, refusing to comment on something saying nearly half of the country could pick up an infectious disease is is right up there on good practice. Yeah, uh, particularly when you're in, in the, in, not, you have this incredibly terrifying number of 1.9 million people, but in the middle of it all, the nugget that around 1 million of these infections will take place in a matter of three weeks. Yeah, the, the HSE is projecting that a million of those infections will take place over the same three-week period. And um, if that happened, Gary, our health system would look much like that of Burundi's. But I mean, not all of those million people will end up in a hospital. Um, okay, yeah, that's but fine. But if 10% of them do, that's 100,000 additional patients over three weeks. 100,000 in three weeks. And on top of that, you're talking about... Of that 10%, maybe 10% of those, and we're talking best-case scenarios here, would be in the ICU. Do you know um, how many public beds there are in Irish hospitals? Here's a, an answer to a, a quiz question. 
God, I did actually once upon a time know that. According to the HSE website, there are 11,660. There used to be more. There used to be more, but I don't uh, I don't think... I think it may have been about 50% over that. I'd have to check. I think we used to be around 14,000, 15,000. So we're looking at a million people infected in three weeks. We don't know how many of those people will go to hospital. There are different figures from different countries about how many people with coronavirus uh, will need to go to hospital. But we do know a significant amount of people infected will need either oxygen or some sort of uh, mechanical breathing aid. Yeah. And there are 11,000 public beds in Irish hospitals, which would be about um, a percent. Yes. So anything more than... That's assuming every one of these beds was free. Which they're not, because basically none of them are free. So the Irish hospital system, even if no one was using it, anything above about 1% of that uh, of that ill population going to hospital will just cause it to crash and burn. So on that they're not basis, great numbers, are they? They're not, is, is there not an argument, Gary, on that basis, using the precautionary principle to say, panic, lads, the time has come to panic. Everybody, the time has come to be paranoid lunatics. I mean, no, you shouldn't panic because panic is, um, your fear is the mind killer, as Dune said. You shouldn't panic, but I think it would be quite practical because the way this will work is you, you want, let's say you have to have two million cases. Right. Every country's uh, health service has a capacity. And if it stays, if the cases stay below that, if it takes, if basically if the 2 million or however many is spread out over a longer period of time, it gives the health service more time to deal with that. Yes. A million people in three weeks is not something the Irish health service could deal with. Absolutely You need to, not. you need to flatten the curve. You need to push that down massively. It's, it's hard to, 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 to do this on, on radio, but if the, if the listener was to imagine a graph, a line graph, and that, where you have a you have a spike, an actual spike, which goes vroom, up over the space of two or three weeks. That's what happens in the in what they call the in the in in that in in the, all the models done. That's what shall we say in the least extreme measure situation. The argument for the most extreme measure scenarios is not that you're necessarily going to reduce the total number of infections, although you're. That is a possibility that they're talking a, a difference between, say, 30% to 60%. The, the thing is that you take that and you flatten it and you turn it from being an alpine mountain into a rolling hill and it flattens out. And that means a number of things. You get time. And it, everybody that I've heard talking about this and that keeps saying one of the things about anything like this is time. Hmm. It may be the case that over the next two years, 60% of the world's population is infected by this. But we know that there are, for example, at least 40 centres at the moment working on treat drug treatments and drug therapies for this. Time gives those therapies a chance to see which therapies are most effective and which combinations can work. So you, there's, time will give you an opportunity to start developing treatment. Time will give you the opportunity. We know there are several centres working on vaccines and if the Israelis are to believe that 
there is a possibility that a vaccine could be developed quite quickly. Now, obviously, yes, there are then problems with production and distribution. And since this is a the kind of vaccine everybody in the world will want, well, then it's going to be a problem of getting out there. But again, time, it, they're not the only people doing it. If you, you could have half a dozen or a dozen people developing it, time gives you an opportunity. But if we get this kind of high spike, it will just overwhelm, absolutely overwhelm the system. And it really is kind of frightening. I mean, so in the World Health Organization sent a team to China um, and they found that about 5% of the corona cases, uh, coronavirus cases required artificial respiration and about 15% needed to be given um, oxygen, highly concentrated oxygen. Yeah. Now, that would be disastrous for the... Um, for the Irish Health Service. It simply could not do that. We've already had people involved in the Irish Health Service come out and say that currently the Irish Health System is some of the Dublin-based hospitals, I think it was St. Vincent's, said they were running at 110% of capacity right? already. And also, the thing is, it's not like we're in a position that this is a local problem where we can turn and we can say to Britain or the States or to Europe and say, listen, we can, we're going to buy your surplus stock of machines or of oxygen tanks or delivery systems, whatever it is, because nobody is going to be giving these things away. Everybody's going to need them for themselves. What we have is what we have. I don't think the Irish health, so the Irish health system has no capability to deal with surges. If 5% of those people would need um, mechanical aids to breathe, that would be, um, and they'd die if they didn't get it, that would be pretty bad. Yeah, I'm... I'm <laughs> I'm speaking as somebody who probably would need, if I did get this, there's a chance that I would need mechanical aids. I have uh, I have an asthmatic condition. and Now, again, I'm obviously not a doctor. When they say 80-85% of cases can be quite mild, I don't know, does that mean that you, there are different levels or strengths of infection that you might get a mild form and irrespective of your 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 condition that you might be able to deal with it or does it mean that that everybody gets the same infection but that some people will be worse affected by from it? from the from the world health organization report the the joint mission to china they say that most people infected with covid-19 have mild disease and recover approximately 80% of laboratory confirmed patients have had mild to moderate diseases which uh, now you would imagine but that number is greater because not everyone who has it will go to a hospital. Uh, some people will think they have flu. Some people will think uh, they will, won't have terribly severe symptoms and they, they just won't go. So one would expect it to be over 80% amongst the actual population. This is laboratory confirmed patients. People who have been tested. 13.8% have a severe disease and 6.1% are critical. So you're talking respiratory failure, septic shock multiple organ dysfunction or failure right sick yeah if 6.1 percent are critical we expect a million over three weeks that would be what sixty-one thousand people yeah which would be about five times the not quite six times the um the entire capability of public beds in ireland yeah now that would be as i said i would expect these numbers I expect far above 80% have mild to moderate, and uh, we see that replicated. The survival rate seems largely to depend on the ability of the country it's in to slow down the spread of the disease, and then uh, the hospital systems. And we're not doing a lot to slow it down, and our hospital system is 
like our hospital system gets fucked by the common flu every year. Yeah, I'm clinging to notions of positivity that the notion, the numbers in China are massively elevated because you have very high levels of smoking, you have an older I population. The, um, I can give you the morbidity rate, Michael, if you want, for those who have comorbid conditions. No, So do you thanks. have a cardiovascular disease or is it a chronic respiratory disease? Um, you can give this to somebody else afterwards. I or do you, do you have diabetes or hypertension? I have hypertension. I have high blood pressure. So you're you're up to an eight point four percent kill rate. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And with your age, I don't know that could be higher. Great. Mm-hmm. It's good to know. Yeah. No, Gary, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that is that is the World Health Organization's paper. Uh, the actual article is in the the Sunday Business Post. It's well worth reading. Um, the response of the Irish government has not been very solid on this. They they said they didn't cancel the St. Patrick's Day Parade because they didn't want to cause panic. In the same way, they Jeez. refused to give members of the public information on anything because they don't want to cause panic. And they don't seem to have realised that refusing to tell anyone information or comment on anything is not the way one stops panic. It's kind of how they de- dealt with the... Um, with direct provision centres, where they wouldn't want to, uh, they wouldn't want to tell a town that they had bought a hotel, because then the town might complain. They so don't they just want did it. to cause panic. Okay, what's the what's what's the what's the gameplay here? Have they decided that panic is the single biggest thing they want to avoid, or is it disease transmission? Which is more important, stopping disease transmission or panic? How many people normally go into the centre of Dublin for a Patrick's Day parade? I have. Uh, no idea. It's hundreds of thousands. It's a large amount, yeah. Yeah, what? And I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe an epidemiologist would say, "Ah, sure, actually, it doesn't make any difference." The French have banned uh, any kind of uh, groups over a thousand, over a thousand people getting together. The Italians have shut Milan, which is like a fifth of their economy. You know, uh, right t- today, and it hasn't gone down very well. The President of the region of Puglia has signed a decree basically saying that nobody from the from specified places in the north of Italy is allowed into Puglia. There's, um, there's a concept called social distancing. Yeah. And it's it's basically it's, it's steps you can take to slow down the spread of infectious disease that's spread by um, person-to-person contact. And yeah, they tend to be things like don't gather hundreds or thousands of people together. Don't touch people if you don't need to. Um, you know, hand sanitizer, things like that, all really useful things. Yes. But, I mean, for instance, there is a conference going on today of a thousand people, the Global Alcohol Policy Conference, which Simon Harris is speaking at and has people flying in from all over the world. And I may be absolutely off the wall about this, but I will check it. And if I am off the wall, I will eventually come back and apologize deeply. But my suspicion is that when we actually look at all of the speakers, that the that this Global Alcohol Conference will not actually turn out to be a conference where a wide variety and diversity of views on the goods and the ills of alcohol are discussed and sensible scientific science-based approaches to behaviour are uh, outlined, but rather a bunch of people are going to come in and tell Simon that he's right, and a, co- and a complete waste of time. It's one of the World Health Organization's um, co-hosted events, so yeah, that's pretty much it. Interestingly enough, I reached out to them um, 
asking them and reaching out to the Department of Health and reaching out to Simon Harris. And I asked all of them, had they completed the various risk assessments and mitigation plans and transmission reduction plans that the World Health Organization has recommended in uh, the document they've brought out on large gatherings and COVID-19? Yeah. And uh, my goodness, you know, I just... That I initially got a, a response from the department saying they would call me, and then I never heard from them. Hey, I'm shocked, shocked and surprised I am. I mean, because it, it's just... Now, I also put in an FOI request, um, which I will get back in about a month. But I will be very interested when I, I get that request to see if those plans actually exist. Because, you know, Michael, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if they don't. In which case, the Department of Health will be hosting an event, bringing a thousand people together from all over the world, including people from areas that have fairly rampant infections at this point. Yeah. Without putting together um, mitigation plans or ways to limit the damage of that to public health. Or submitting the event to a risk analysis. Again, I'm shocked that that could possibly be the case. Yeah, yeah. I was actually, I was quite surprised when they initially got back to me because I figured they're, uh, they were just going to refuse to talk at all. Detailed questions make civil servants nervous. Yeah. Particularly when I asked wh- who had signed off on the plans. That's just something they're not going to want to give you. But that's going to go on for the next three days. And um, lots of stuff like that. The St. Patrick's Day thing, of course, was very weird. We don't want to cause panic, so we won't cancel St. Patrick's Day. I would suspect there is also a little bit of... Um, I would say they're also facing some pressure from employee employer groups who might be saying, we will lose a ton of money if certain things are called off or if, if we uh, limit movement. I... I understand all of that, and I know that probably, not probably, certainly, that my attitude to this is coloured by my own personal situation. As John Crown was, who was on, I don't know if you you heard John Crown was speaking about this, and John Crown is absolutely livid about that large-scale events are still being considered, because John Crown is dealing with people who are severely Weakened and immunocompromised, and all sorts of things that uh, therefore, in, in you know, really in a, in a bad way, that this uh, he has serious, serious concerns. But we have containment. We, we we're an island. There was a notion that we could actually implement that there was a possibility of implementing some kind of proper containment plan. We did not apparently implement that. Containment has in the first phase failed. Yes. There will be significant losses, and I think that this is an area where we'll be looking to, say, the European Central Bank, the Fed, and others to feed uh, liquidity into the markets. And there are economists talking about direct cash transfers in into citizens' bank accounts to maintain some kind of economic stability over uh, over uh, the, the short to medium term. There are economic consequences, no doubt. But if this goes out of control, as would be indicated by that projected uh, possible scenario that the HSC was asked about. The economic consequences of that, Gary, would be, I mean, mind-blowing. It's, that's a, that's economy-sinking stuff. Yeah, I, I have enjoyed the amount of people going, um, this is the fault of capitalism. That's that's always a good, fun one. Yeah, I wonder what the state is, what, how things are going in North Korea. I think they shot everyone who had the infection. <laughs> Sorry. They may well have done. No, I think they did. I did. Re- they at least shot some of them. I think it started where they, the regime official was. He was either tested and it was found he had coronavirus, 
or he was told to self-isolate because he was he had been in China, and he went to a hot springs instead. Oh. Uh, and he got shot. Which, I mean, I don't usually agree with the decisions of the North Korean government, but, like, can't feel sorry for that. Indeed. It's, um... Anyway, shall we move on? Yes. Even more cheerful topics. The Union of Students in Ireland. Michelle Byrne, the uh, deputy president, she's got herself into a bit of bother. She has. She's been misspeaking, I think. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'd say. Certainly saying things she shouldn't be to the people she's saying them to. Um, You may remember her coming up before Michael, actually. Yeah? She um she was the person who sent out a tweet saying that she had met with Leo Varadkar a while ago, I think before he'd become Taoiseach anyway, and they were talking about sex education and the uh, blood ban on oh yes yeah men yeah, who have yes, sex yes. with men giving and um she said that he told her there was little point in inclusive sex education in schools when it was the Africans and Brazilians bringing HIV in and sure we don't need more blood yeah. That was a score one for Leo there. Yeah. Sensitivity training obviously hadn't completed. Well, I mean, she had no proof he'd actually said it, but she said he said it and he didn't uh, He didn't comment on it on all. Um, well, to be... You know, and there was no it, recording of it, so no one could prove it, although she was there with other people and they backed her up. Uh, unfortunately for Michelle, she gave a fairly long conversation to someone who recorded it, uh, a group called Irish Students Against Fascism, who it turned out was a honeypot account set up by the Birkin, formerly the Birkin Journal. Yeah. The student publication. Uh, and they basically did it as a, uh, a honeypot for Antifa groups. And Michelle um, offered to send them on the names of particular students so that they could be placed on a Antifa watch list. And in the, in the call, they are very clear that this is... Uh, that they are open to violence against these people, that they want to ruin their careers, report them to the college authorities, and she then said she would give them names. It would seem to be a bit of a no-no. Like names of bad students? Well, sort of wrong-thinking students on campuses, or what? Yeah, well, what they actually said was, um, the Birkin chap said that if you give us names, we can pass them on to people that could slap them around a bit. And she said, absolutely, now that's good. Uh, I can probably send you on a couple. Slap them around a bit. And then she told them that uh, there were lots of links between Young Fine Gael and fascism, and that it would be great if they could get someone on the inside of a Young Fine Gael conference, because she's here at their shit shows. And they said, you know, the Birkin had said, yeah, we can do that sort of illegal stuff. And Birkin said, yeah, absolutely. You know, you have to say that some of the questioning in this wasn't subtle no no there are repeated things like so you're okay with us with us like ruining these people's careers and he's like yeah 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 sure you'd imagine that somebody who was maybe listening more intense had their antennae up might have started i don't know if somebody said that to me i would like to think that after a while i think hold there's something odd about this about this yeah, conversation. Yeah. It's like the um, I imagine it's much like a, an undercover police officer who just starts going up to me. So are we committing any crimes today? Let's go buy some drugs. <laughs> yeah, right. something odd about this. It's very one-dimensional. Hey, dudes, 
Does anybody here sell the ganja? I'd like, I think some people might like to buy some of the ganja. It reminds me of years ago being in Fibbers when undercover Gardi would come in. And you just, Fibbers is a metal baron, Dublin, for people who don't know. And you see these guys come in in like pressed jeans with brown shoes, clean shaven, no tattoos, no piercings. And you sort of went, lad, this is not a, it's not a great start for you here. Had none of these people ever seen an American cop show? About how how you do under undercover. Yeah, I don't think they really cared. But um, yeah, so deputy president of the um, the USI, and they say they have more members of the executive on tape. Oh, mm. so more to come. More to come. But um, there's also some interesting stuff about her talking about how her job is to pull everything to the left, and she handles. She says she handles most of their campaigns. And so in everything, she just tries to pull it as far to the left as, as she could. Which, the USI's purpose is to represent students. It's not to push a particular political agenda. But if someone is saying their job is to pull something as far to the left as they can, it would kind of indicate that the students aren't actually the most important part of the job to them. Yeah, I. it's, it's a very long time since I was a student. So may, things may well have changed up. When I was my first year in college... The Students' Union was run by a group who are, I think, Maoists. And that might surprise people considering that I was in Maynooth, which was not a hotbed at the time of of radical politics other than the geography department. And there's a very simple reason why there was a bunch of Maoists, because nobody gave a fly-in about student politics. I Later on in the 90s, well, we were kind of part of that because we had a bit of fun the following year and decided to take the ball out and we basically cleaned out the union for the next while because we actually ran a campaign to get people elected who nobody would be bothered before to do. Fianna Fáil kind of got interested in student politics in the 90s and got quite a few people elected. How, how, how much attention do students actually pay to student politics? None, basically. You, the student unions are generally a small group of people. Most students don't vote in these things. But the interesting thing is... is there's a lot of money. There is a politics. lot of money. I knew a girl who was involved in 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 the students' union UCD, and some of the stories that she told me about money and money and shall we say the misspending of money. Well, they they have quite a lot. Well, of money. I mean, you're talking about serious lumps oh, yeah. of money. So, for for if the listener who may not know this, when you most universities when you pay your your entrance fees. Part of that is given to the student union, and you have no right to remove yourself from the student unions. It's it's something that certain students have had a big issue with over the last number of years, because the student unions have been getting positions on things that they traditionally wouldn't have, whether it's uh, Israel or abortion or just politics in general. And then you as a student have no choice but to give these people money, and you can't get away from them or get your money back even if they are promoting political causes you don't support and don't want to support. Yes, and once upon a time, if uh, you, in most jobs in Ireland, you had, you, you, when you joined, you became a member of a union, certainly if you're in the public sector or any kind of factories. And it, used, it was the case that um, you became a union, and unions, part of your union dues, automatically went to the Labour Party. Um, I know that this was the case, say, in what was the Post-Telegraphs and then became 
Telecom Aaron, because a man I know who was actually a union rep in it, but a Finnegaler, was involved in a campaign because he naturally enough resented deeply that his pennies were going to support a party that he didn't. And he got, there was a campaign to stop that happening. And that doesn't happen, I I think, pretty well anymore. However, it is in the case of the Students' Union, there's no way you can... You you could you can you can resile yourself from that payment. I suppose because the union provides well anyway or for whatever reasons, but you can't do it. Now it's also true that there have been at different times different universities coming and going from the USI. At, at any one time, I'm sure in Trinity or in UCD or at one of the other NUI colleges, there is somebody running a campaign to disaffiliate from the USI. Any idea is that is that happening? I think that's happening in Trinity, is it? If it's well, if it comes out that the USI president was aware of these things and was aware a deputy president was effectively working to create a a list of problematic students, I would imagine you're going to be seeing disaffiliation campaigns in a couple of colleges, particularly amongst young Fine Gael. They can't be happy about this. No, she said, she said they were targeted. a home of fascists on campus. <laughs> She implied they should bug one of their meetings. I believe there is another recording where she talks about um, how she can help them bug a meeting. A guy who was elected president of this union in UCD at the end of my time in college, and and one of his platforms was, I think anybody caught swimming in the lake should be executed. He, everywhere he went, he was he was he had a, surrounded by a phalanx. Of six guys, three on each side, who wore trench coats, dark and dark glasses, and I think probably fedoras. And I think that was about the most interested anybody ever got in student politics. UCD at the, around the same time, a ferret was elected president of a students' union in the United Kingdom when the university is there. So hmm. my point being that you have to do something to get people interested, and this might just get people interested in what in in student politics. Um, and that's really the real story. Here is the money, and because they are really they are able to run well funded campaigns on issues which, right, most students. I mean, I remember we had a we had a, a referendum at one, a, to change student union policy. There were a hundred and five different articles that you had to vote on in this referendum, right? Which is a fairly substantial number, but one of them that I would have, there was lots of things on abortion and divorce and all sorts of and other and things, but one of them was that the students' union in Maynooth would not invite Paul Simon to play at the union because he had played in Sun City in South Africa, and to me that was just the crystallisation of students' union politics, and I can I, I I imagined that somewhere in in a large loft apartment in New York, Paul Simon was weeping bitter tears that his long-held ambition to play the students' union on a Wednesday night when it was a pound-a-pint night in Maynooth was never going to be realised because he'd made that one terrible mistake of playing music in South Africa. And you know what, Gary? To this day, Paul Simon has never played in Maynooth. Is Paul Simon aware that Maynooth exists as a concept? I'm shocked that you'd ask that question. Yeah. I mean, does he know what he's missing out on? Well, I tell you, he was missing out something very special. The Students' Union Maynooth at that time was literally a barn. Tom Fee, who later became Cardinal Tom Fee in, the, in, in Armagh, had been president of the college. And since the students had nowhere, the union had nowhere to go, he, there was a barn because there was a farm attached to the college. 
and he gave them the barn. And frankly, that's all it ever was, a, a barn with a bar and a place for Cayleys or for large-scale table quizzes. Um, so I don't know to what extent Paul Simon is aware of it. There you go. That's student politics. So I think that's that's a story that we'll probably be coming back to, Gary. I'm sure that it sounds like there may be more to, more more stuff we'll to come. The, we will see what else they um they produce. We'll also see if the um the other students um unions do anything about this. Yeah. Um. Or if uh, if anything comes of this at all, nothing may come of it. Anyway, we will be back on Wednesday, and uh, until then, all the best. Stay well. Wash your hands. Or don't. We're not police.